Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. The volume. No! Oh my God! How could he do that? Are you on? Don't What? Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brever and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we begin the most arduous and important journey in show history. This week, we are going to be ranking our top 25 players in NBA history. We have a bunch to say about all these guys, so we're going to break it into five parts, starting with 25 through 21 today. So this has been a great deal of fun, but I have agonized more over this than anything else ever so, Logan, first of all, why don't you just talk us through your criteria and what was most important to you when you were making all these decisions? The most important thing to me, Carson, uh, I think was two-way value. Uh, I, I want players that are good on both ends of the floor, can be impactful on offense and defense. Uh, I value team success. You know, did your team win uh, when you were out there? And uh, with that, were you the best player on a championship team or a team that got to the NBA Finals? Uh, and this is in order as well. And then I'd say peak is very important. I value that slightly over longevity, but longevity does matter. Like if you are good for 15 years, obviously I'm going to value that more over a guy who was great for eight years. So uh, that's probably, uh, that's my criteria. And I think in that order as well. Okay, we have some crossover. It's interesting that you're sticking to that two-way value because I recall for our current player rankings, that led you to put a one Anthony Davis, perhaps over a one Steph Curry. I don't know if it's that simple, but generally, yes, two-way value is a very good thing because most of the all-time great players do not have an easily exploitable weakness. That's an important part of translating so well to the playoff stage. So I broadly agree there, but there are certain guys who can transcend that standard. Mm -hmm. My criteria... Number one, how much is your skill set contributing in terms of championship value? This is the biggest thing to me. I'm not focused on your influence on the development of the sport or the culture. I'm not interested in how dazzling and spectacular you may have been as an aerial athlete or a crazy difficult shot maker, but you were inefficient. I mean, of course, all those things are fun, but for the scope of this list, it's about how are you driving me towards the ultimate goal, which is winning a championship. So... 
I also really value playoff production in this conversation because as we've seen, there are certain play styles that just don't translate quite as well to that stage. We've seen it with Joel Embiid these past few years, right? The foul grifting doesn't translate. His jump shooting has fallen apart. As he faces more double teams, his playmaking can become a real issue. There are just certain great players throughout NBA history who haven't translated as well to that stage and others who have risen uh, to another level even. So that matters to me. And as you mentioned, I do really value people who got over the hump as the guy and won a title because I think that's an incredible achievement that shows that your game translates very well and you were able to reach this incredibly high level, especially guys who did that without overwhelmingly talented supporting casts. But I also want to emphasize that we're not just counting rings here. Context is extremely Mm -hmm. important. The role that a player played, the team that they had around them, the competition that they may have faced, like Jason Kidd's 2011 ring, good for him, I'm super glad that he got it, doesn't really matter. There are a lot of dudes throughout NBA history who could have filled that role as a good table setter and whatnot. So it definitely matters that you contributed to that ring at your apex and the context in which it happened also matters a lot. Accolades, to me, can serve as an estimate, sort of an approximation for how good a guy may have been, but they are far from the end-all, be-all. I think that, especially with awards like MVP, narratives come into play, voter fatigue, it's not just completely objectively telling the story of who was the best player, and bottom line, voters make decisions that I fundamentally disagree with, some that age poorly, some that I just think are wrong in the moment, and so I'm not going to put my stock into somebody else saying, hey, this guy was this good, I'm going to make my own evaluation of that, so not just blindly following, hey, let's look at this guy's resume in terms of accolades or raw statistical production either. And like you, I think that peak matters more than longevity. If a player achieves something that another player just clearly couldn't, was not capable of to me, then the guy with the lower peak needs a lot of things going in their favor to be above the guy with the higher peak. It's pretty rare. But as you said, if the peaks are close, then of course longevity matters. And there are certain guys who have exceptionally high peaks, but they're so brief that they can't be on this list because the totality of their impact just can't quite compete like Bill Walton is the first example that comes to my mind. So wanted to get all the criteria laid out there first so you guys understand our general framework of thinking here. With that said, Logan, there's so many great names who we had to leave off. I could easily do an episode just on the honorable mentions, but who was your toughest cut before we get to your number 25? I think my two toughest cuts were Isaiah Thomas and Steve Nash. Uh, Mm. I I wanted both of these point guards uh, up here. I think Steve Nash, uh, you did a tremendous video, Carson, on him on uh, TikTok, and and we've talked on the podcast in depth about how many great offenses he led, how far ahead of his time he was, and how productive he made those offenses. Uh, You know, always in double-digit assists. Not, you know, a takeover dominant scorer, but uh, could score when he needed to. For me... Uh, Steve Nash's lack of a ring, lack of playoff success, I held that against him, despite him leading his offenses to being, you know, great, one of the best in the league. And his defensive impact is what left him off. And then Isaiah Thomas, those teams were really great. And I don't want to discredit Isaiah. You know, he has a finals MVP. He is one of the greatest passers ever. He's a great scorer. But uh, for me, those teams are really loaded. And I just didn't think he reached uh, a high enough apex uh, as an individual. And also, he doesn't have that two-way impact. So, those two guys were my toughest cuts. I also do want to mention, you talk about where I ranked Steph 
in my current player rankings, if you are an overwhelmingly dominant offensive engine, if you are driving Mm -hmm. offense to uh, the highest of high levels, I definitely value that. And I can, I can, I can overlook your minimal defensive impact. If you were such a great offensive engine, I want that out on the table. I have learned from my mistakes in my former rankings. Uh, If you were a dominant offensive engine, I'm going to value that more than two way value. Yeah, those guys are both on my short list as well. I think you hit the nail on the head with Isaiah, and of course he's iconic and he's great, and I cannot emphasize enough how much I don't want to disrespect anybody by leaving them off this list because I left many of my favorite players ever who I love to bring up much more than the average person off this list just because, man, (laughs) there's only 25 spots. I just think that was such a great collective team defense, and Isaiah was the best offensive player, and he was the guy who stepped up, but his whole career led one top five offense, scored at below average efficiency, so to me, it is more about the totality of the team there, where everybody on this list to me was more of a singular force. Nash, one of the greatest offensive engines, I believe it was eight number one offenses that he led in nine years across Dallas and Phoenix. And one of the handful of greatest playmakers and shooters we've ever seen a historically efficient score, but defensive limitations and lack of a truly great playoff run. Although I do think he elevated his game even there or a more prolonged prime and elite two way impact is why he's not here for me. But boy, was he close. I considered Kawhi Leonard for this list. I just think his peak is crazy since the 2017 playoffs. I've read these numbers off before recently, but they're unbelievable. He's putting up 30 points a night on 63.5% true shooting while being a two-way force, not what he was at his apex. But the 2019 title run, like you want to talk about valuing reaching the pinnacle of the sport, that level of wing scoring, physical imposition paired with shooting brilliance, two-way impact. It's rare to see a guy carry a team like that in the scope of NBA history. But I mean, since he reached that peak, we've seen him finish two seasons and one of them was phenomenal 2019. The other one was a disappointing run in the bubble. So he just hasn't ultimately been available at that peak for long enough. My three toughest cuts. I'm tentative to mention a couple of them because I think they'll probably be on your list. So I will just talk about David Robinson for now, who I think is uh, really underrated as a floor raiser throughout the scope of NBA history because he had one of the highest defensive peaks ever immediately turned the Spurs into a top three defense then a number one defense the next couple years I think is the second greatest defensive playmaker of the modern era only to Akeem and one of the clearly 10 greatest defensive anchors and defensive players of all time just a generational rim protector and incredibly unique athlete with that blend of 7'1 size, 7'5 wingspan, his agility and balance while also having some legitimate strength and basketball skill like a solid jump shooter, a post hub who could propel you to being a solid team offense. And he led the Spurs before Timmy Duncan ever came into town to average 55 wins a season and made them a top three defense four times in those years, brought them to the second round four times and the Western Conference Finals once. And again, famously, the year before he came into town, they were a 21-win team, and they added some really good players around him, Terry Cummings and Sean Elliott, so the team got better, but he's the reason that they then won 56 games his rookie year, and then 1997, he gets hurt, that's how they get Tim Duncan, they're 3-3 and when he plays 17-59 and without him, so I think if we had the full on-off data for him, it would be monstrous. And of course, he continued to contribute to those championship teams with his defense in especially 99 and a little bit still in 03. But what it comes down to for me 
is that his effectiveness as an offensive hub took a hit in the playoffs, like we've talked about. He went from being close to 26 points per game on almost 6% true shooting, better than league average from 90 to 96, to 24 points per game on much closer to average efficiency. The fact that he wasn't a great playmaker was exposed a bit as he was just the total focal point of defensive attention, averaged as many turnovers as assists in that span. And just more often than not, in that playoff setting, the great offensive players won out. And he wasn't able to lead the Spurs defenses to be as great in the playoffs as he did in the regular season. So the lack of that one high-volume offensive run where he really held up to his regular season standards and shined, if he had that maybe I could have him in my 25 spot because of just the incredible combination of winning skill sets, insane defensive anchor, and uh, one of the most dominant ever there while being a good offensive number one. But ultimately, the guy who I do have in my 25 spot took a team all the way that maybe didn't have the personnel that belonged there and had that sort of historic offensive impact, and I just can't undervalue that. So... So many tough cuts. Who do you have at 25, though? Number 25 is my most unique player on the list in the fact that I don't ever think he was a dominant offensive or defensive anchor, but I value his contributions to winning and his longevity. Uh, and that's John Havlicek. Uh, Havlicek's an eight-time NBA champion. He got a finals MVP in 1974. Four times was selected to the All-NBA first team. Seven times was selected to the All-NBA second team. And why I went with him over guys like Isaiah Thomas or Steve Nash, it is that two-way value. Uh, Havlicek was a dog, was an energy guy, was a hustler. Uh, his most famous play, Havlicek stole the ball, clinching um, the finals for the Celtics. And so Havlicek's not an offensive engine the caliber of a Steve Nash. He's not an offensive beast the caliber of an Isaiah Thomas, but he made winning plays. Uh, for At his peak was basically 21-6-5 and five on 44%. Um, and that's really the thing that makes Havlicek unique to being on my list. Everybody else, I think you can genuinely consider as an engine, as a guy that solely drove success on either both sides of the floor or on one side of the floor. But considering for how long Havlicek did it for, for how great he was on both sides of the floor, and how imperative he was to the Celtics being great on offense and defense, I had to value that. Now, he does have great teams. He's playing with Casey Jones. He's playing with Sam Jones. He's playing with Bill Russell. Like, those are great teams, and I think that is a real knock on Havlicek. But like I said, great longevity, a solid peak, and he drove winning. That, that to me, matters. I don't want to overlook his winning contributions. Um, like I said, I don't think – I think if you're looking for floor raisers, I think there's a lot of other arguments you can make for a Nash, for a lot of other guys who had NBA history, but he did it for – uh, basically 15 seasons, started his career coming off the bench, eventually cracked the starting lineup, and uh, just drove winning and was a huge part of the Celtic success in the 60s and 70s. So Havlicek is unique in the sense that he's not a, a, a you know a sole dominant force. He's a more of a complementary piece, but uh, has great longevity and drove winning back then. So I don't know if you're going to have him here, Carson. Uh, I, I value his his contributions to winning. So for me, he's number 25. Hondo was on my list for so long, and he is one of the three toughest cuts who I referred to. But fundamentally with this list, 
I valued guys who I felt that as a number one could get me singularly drive me to contention to winning a title and there's even some guys who didn't do it but who were on that precipice mm -hmm. and who you just think certain circumstantial things they clearly had that level of basketball ability I think in some ways what I'm talking about with David Robinson right he was maybe suited to be the ultimate basketball number two where he's your defensive anchor but offensively he doesn't have to carry that sort of number one load Scottie Pippen I don't have on my list, who I think people mm -hmm. consider the ultimate Robin in basketball history because I don't think he could have carried a team to the places that some of the guys on this list who may not even have a ring did and demonstrated that they could throughout their career. Hondo, to me, falls into that same category, and I don't want to undervalue his winning skill set because it is a phenomenal combination of elite defensive impact, and I do want to really emphasize how great he is there. Long physical, very disciplined, great hands, highly efficient, famously well-conditioned so he could apply frequent pressure. He was an irritant. He played bigger than he was at 6'5 and was really physical and long again so he could hang in the post in some of those matchups. Very smart. I mean, he was just phenomenal on that end of the floor. And then offensively, one of the best non-point guard playmakers that we've ever seen to this day and he is actually top five in non-point guard assists and you mentioned the longevity that he did have he was good when he came into the league and he was good when he left it I also think his peak is underrated like 1970 to 72 regular season he's 27 8 and 7 on slightly above league average efficiency he's top three in scoring and top five in assists in both of those years great mid-range shooter like his scoring game was very impressive, although his efficiency wasn't always great. But what it comes down to is you talk about him driving winning, and I just don't totally agree with that phrasing, because although he was a really good one-on-one -on -one defender, the Celtics were a historically great defense before John Havlicek, because they had Bill Russell, and they were the number one defense with Bill Russell 12 of his 13 seasons. Bill Russell retires, the Celtics immediately fall off to a below-average defense, even though Honda was still there. And they're a below-average team with Hondo actually driving the boat, if you will. Then they get Dave Cowens, and that's a great defensive big. Now they're a great team defense again. And you get a little bit of that offensive injection with JoJo White, and now they're actually able to reach higher heights on that end of the floor than they ever did in the Hondo, Sam Jones, Russell sort of days when they were really never a good offense they were above average in offensive efficiency once in all those years. Like, they were that astronomically above the rest of the league on defense. That's why they were winning all those titles. And that was because of Bill Russell so much more than anybody else. So, given the fact that he wasn't going to drive great offenses, that although he was a very good playmaker, he was an average efficiency scorer. And so, he wasn't a great all-around hub there. And although he was very good, great defensively, he wasn't the driver of any great team defenses. I just don't think his peak quite compares. I don't think he could carry teams like some of the guys that we see above him. And he is ultimately an all-time great player, but a beneficiary of a historically great situation and playing alongside one of the 10 best players that we've ever seen. So he's uh, in my top 28, Logan, but he is not quite in my top 25. I'll stop screwing around, man. Who do you have in the top 25 well, I just wanted to give you a chance to say anything you might want about Hondo because I do love him. And again, he was well, on my list for a long time, but didn't make the final cut. 
the longevity really did it for me because you're right. He wasn't the number one on any of those teams, but to be successful that great for that long and just have that much success, that was the one knock on Hondo and why I maybe consider dropping him down for any of the other offensive uh, hubs that I mentioned, or even a Scottie Pippen, right? Because Havlicek at the end of the day isn't a, he's not a Batman, right? He's not a number one. That was the big knock against him, but for me, the longevity and how good he was at his peak, the energy plays, I don't think the Celtics have all that success without Hondo, and he did it for so long. His longevity outweighs a lot of guys, like Isaiah Thomas retires really early, you know, at the age of 32. Mm -hmm. Steve Nash isn't great until, you know, his age 26, 27 season. So uh, for me, how consistently great Hondo was and how great he was, you know, how long he was great for, uh, really, and again, the two-way value is what did it for me. But you're right. I think all the other guys, like I mentioned, could be your number one on a team that got to the championship. I don't think Hondo checks that box. Yeah, and even on the 74 team, right, I think he is the best player in that run. But Dave Cowens was MVP the league before and again was the anchor of that great defense. He just played with a lot of great talent. But on half of these rings, mm -hmm. he's not a top three player on his team. The Celtics were just absolutely loaded. I love Hondo. My number 25, though, is Dwayne Wade, who I think clearly peaked higher and, again, climbed the mountain, achieved the apex in a way that not only Hondo didn't as that sort of singular force, I do not think he was capable of. So some of the strengths of D. Wade's case here. He is one of the greatest rim-pressuring guards ever with the necessary shooting and playmaking skill to make him a truly great offensive player. It starts with rare quickness and vertical ability that made him this great paint pressurer and rim finisher. But it's more than that too. I mean, he was so skilled as a ball handler. He had such great change in pace. He was so balanced and capable of navigating in traffic at really high speeds and changing direction in traffic. He was just inherently slippery, I would say. But again, it's the counters so that he's not a guy that if you totally build a wall against him, well, he crumbles. He can't attack that. He was excellent from floater range, 46% from that 3 to 10 foot range in his career. He was just below 40% from mid-range in his career, but had a really wide variety of ways that he could attack you there. And that was a big time shot for him to lean on in big situations. And just so, again, he had a counter where he didn't have to get to the rim every single time. And playmaking was a real strength for him. He could make skip passes versus doubles and anticipate that. And against aggressive help, he could dissect. And he was just a massive defensive collapser because of how athletic and imposing he was there. So he really did enhance his teammates and his peak is really high. 2006 to 2011, he's putting up 27 points, six and a half assists a game on 3% true shooting better than league average. And in the playoffs from 2005 to 2011, even a little bit better over 27 points per game on 4% true shooting above league average. And of course has the 2006 finals where it's not just that he puts up 35-8-4 on 5% true shooting better than league average. He does it when teams are averaging 93 points per game. So if we want to compare him to another all-time great final series, Giannis Antetokounmpo in 2021, the equivalent by the percentage of their team's points that D-Wade scored, it would be like if in 2021, drop him to that series, averaging 42 points per game. This was a low point for offensive production and pace, and he went out there and just completely dominated athletically in a way that we have very rarely seen in NBA history. 
Also, again, I don't value accolades too much. He doesn't have an MVP. That, to me, okay, MVPs are arbitrary. Would anybody argue that Derrick Rose's peak was higher than Dwayne Wade? Of course not, but D. Rose has an MVP due to circumstances. The 2009 regular season is one of the best ever to not be rewarded with an MVP. You drop in 30 and 7.5 on plus 3% true shooting versus league average with a plus 14 on-off number. And I think he was a strong floor raiser because of this offensive value. In the five years before he teamed up with LeBron, when he was just carrying those Heat teams, they improved by 11.5 points per 100 possessions with him on the floor. They won almost 56% of their games with him, 38% of their games without him. And in the Miami years after Shaq, he elevated those teams, bad supporting casts, from being league-worst level offenses to at least... 75th percentile offenses, very good when he was on the court for three of those four years. The 2007 season was brutal. That team was really bad. He was hurt. He wasn't able to take those teams far, like they were first round exits, but demonstrated his value as a floor raiser, a guy who could bring you up massively offensively, get you into the playoffs, even with weak supporting cast. And I do want to emphasize like that 2006 title, Shaq's mm-hmm. their third leading scorer. Antoine Walker is wildly inefficient, janky ass, is producing more in terms of scoring than Shaq. I just emphasize that because there is this notion that, oh, well, D-Wade had Shaq, and it's like, man, mm-hmm. that was nowhere near apex Shaq. That was like fringe star level Shaq. I also think his peak defensive impact is at times a bit understated. He was so freakishly athletic that that alone made him an upper echelon defender. He's, of course, one of the great shot blocking guards ever really only he and mj are in the same tier over a block a game from 2005 to 2011 offered actual help side rim protection at times could make big time plays in transition chase downs and whatnot and could just affect jump shooters and guys trying to finish against him around the rim consistently and a really strong defensive playmaker overall very good hands his quickness His uh, strength also at that size just made him a problem at the point of attack. So a really great two-way player driven by his athleticism at his peak who achieved something very rare that very few players could have in the history of the sport. The reason I can't have him higher is longevity and availability more specifically. His absolute peak was only about six years, as I've mentioned, sort of ends after that 2011 season. But he did remain a star-level contributor to a pair of title teams. I don't value those nearly as much because, again, more guys throughout NBA history could have filled those roles, but still valuable. And his longevity, it's like 2016, he's still the best guy on a playoff team, right? No, I don't think he was driving really meaningful basketball, but he was able to maintain that star level even though he was clearly far from his apex as like a top five kind of player. But he was also never the best player in the league to me. And he's only two-time first-team All-NBA, eight-time All-NBA overall. But between Kobe and LeBron, somebody else always held that mantle, which clearly on this list there are going to be a good amount of dudes who were the best player in the league for a time. But with that supporting cast, that sort of historic production that we saw from him, not just in 2006, but in that entire half-decade-plus I just think D-Wade was a force and he could impose himself on the game because of how great he was offensively in a way that a David Robinson couldn't, a John Havlicek couldn't, a Scottie Pippen couldn't. And that's what got them over the hump. It wasn't a great team defense. It was a good one. It was an okay offensive supporting cast. There's only a few guys who've been able to propel a team like that throughout NBA history and even fewer of them who are not on my list. I would say Bill Walton because of the 
brevity of his peak. Same goes for Kawhi. Rick Barry is another guy there, but I just think D Wade has an altogether better career considering two-way impact and the consistency with which he was on very good teams is just a little bit better than Rick Barry. So I have D Wade at 25. I actually left D Wade off my list and it was mostly because of the lack of longevity. That being said, I have Kawhi Leonard higher. I just Ooh. think that he was a better player uh, at his peak, but you know, you make a lot of great points about D-Wade, too. We can't underrate that 06 playoff run. I added it as my number 10 greatest playoff run of all time. And like you mentioned, Antoine Walker and Shaq are giving them the 13 points a night in the finals. Like, that is a D-Wade masterclass putting the team on his back. And it sucks, too, dude, because during that stretch, he's dealing with, you know, a, a messed up shoulder. He's dealing with a myriad of knee injuries that really, you know, they take the toll. Uh, right after that, you know, 2012 season, you're not – really getting star D Wade anymore. It's a really, really brief peak. Uh, but he was one of the best guards in basketball. I don't understate that. Number two or number three from 06 to 2011. To me, though, I just think that Kawhi had a higher peak. I think that Kawhi mm -hmm. could be argued as the best player in basketball. And his just two-way impact, I think, is just higher. But D Wade was a tough cut. Like Hondo was top 28 for you. I think D Wade is probably top 28, the third guy off of my list. Um, it's tough, man. I, if D-Wade doesn't get hurt, maybe if we see D-Wade without LeBron, maybe he can put a couple other teams on his back. Uh, it's tough because he does have the longevity edge over Kawhi. I just value Kawhi's peak a little more, and that's why uh, he's on my list and D-Wade isn't. So do you have Kawhi at 24? I don't, actually. I have Kawhi mm. a few spots higher. Okay. And I will say, I actually agree with your point. I think that Kawhi's peak is higher. I think he is a more versatile and efficient scorer. And I think that he is a more impactful two-way player than D-Wade. But again, the point at which he reached that level to me where he was that proficient offensively is 2017. We've seen him finish two seasons since then. And I get like one of those years, he was so monumentally great that he did it. That's why I considered him. He achieved the ultimate goal. But I think D-Wade has more years at that peak value where he's actually finishing them out than Kawhi does. And I think that's the biggest knock on Kawhi's case, man. I'll get into that later when we talk about him, but I, I think that's the biggest knock on him is availability. Uh, <laughs> future employers will tell you availability is the best ability, and Kawhi has missed a ton of games over the past couple years. At number Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my! Look at that! He is! And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win! Unbelievable! When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. We're now joined by three-time NBA Sixth Man of the Year, 
elite bucket getter. Let's please welcome Jamal Crawford to Point Game. King of the Court one-on-one tournament. If they had it back in your prime, do you think he could have took it all? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I could have took it all, but I think I would have shocked a lot of people. I think Kobe and everybody in their prime, Kobe would win a one-on-one contest. Yeah, I, yeah, because you got to think, Love he's going to guard. He don't care about guarding. He's going to guard. He's going to exactly. guard. Like, you see him in the Olympics, exactly. he's going to guard. And then on I'm top of that. Like that, see that. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sam Cassell to Point Game. I remember you came out from crying tears. <laughs> crying tears. I mean, he was in a culture shock. And then I, his, he's going to withdraw us about winning. Remember what I told you? I said, I said, OG, you think I can get paid and go back and play in college because he didn't need it. <laughs> Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. 24 is a guy you mentioned earlier, Carson. I have Jason Kidd at this spot, and I don't think a lot of people would have him in the top 25. I think it's surprising, but I prefer his value over the likes of Isaiah Thomas, over the likes of Steve Nash. And I want to preface something, too, because I don't think that Jay Kidd was ever the offensive asset that those guys were. I mean, I think you're looking at two guys who are better scorers and, you know, the same caliber of passers, but Jake Kidd's one of the greatest, you know, point of attack and point guard defenders ever, man. I mean, I know you don't value that 2011 run as much, and it's not a big part of Jason Kidd's case, but routinely uh, throughout that playoff run, he is drawing the best offensive player on the opposing team. He's taken on KD, he's taken on Kobe, and with the Nets, man, this is a team collective effort. But you're looking at, you know, one top, uh, four top five defenses, uh, two number one defenses that he is a part of. And during his peak, I mean, the worst, uh, the worst team that he anchors is a 41 win team. The best is a 56 win Suns team. Uh, he's four time first team all defense. He's five time all defense second team. He's a five time assist champ. And he's five-time All-NBA first team as well. Uh, When you look at his skill set, though, I don't want to underrate what Jason Kidd was as a passer. Uh, His anticipation and processing is insane, especially in transition. And the way he can move in the air, too, he's super acrobatic, super graceful, is so easily can change what he's doing midair to kick a pass uh, to a guy in the dunker spot. And him and Kenyon had a special connection, man. It's a lot of fun to watch him lining up in the dunk, uh, in the dunker spot on backdoor lobs. Him and Kenyon just had a really special connection. He's great at using ball fakes. He's great at using pump fakes. Uh, he's super deceptive. And on the defensive side of the ball, super smart, great hands. He's clamps. Now, I think the big knock on him is that he's not super efficient, not a great scorer. He's at 15-7-9 during his peak with two steals a game on basically 51% true shooting. He's never a great scorer. He's never super efficient. I think that's a big knock, but... To me, he was the best player on two teams that got to the finals. He has tremendous two-way impact, and I just prefer his two-way value to the likes of Steve Nash and Isaiah Thomas. He doesn't have an MVP, but he does winning things. 4 the Nets are 15 points better per 100 possessions with him. 5 they're 21 points better per 100 possessions with Kidd. They're an eight-win team without Kidd on the floor. They're a 54-win team with him. And then the following season, they're 16 points better per 100 possessions with Kidd. They're a 14-win team without him. They're a 53-win team with Jason Kidd. So I think there's a lot of room. There's a big gap with him in terms of offensive peak. But when you're looking at two-way value from the point guard position, I get he never gets a ring. He never gets an MVP. I think a total encompassing two-way value is one of the highest of any of the point guards to pick from. So he never climbs the mountain. He never gets the job officially done. That's what limits him from being higher on my list. But he got there a couple of times. He was the best player on teams that, frankly, Carson weren't that great. I mean, you got Richard Jefferson, Kenyon Martin, Kerry Kittles, Jason Collins. 
they're not great rosters, and Kidd is taking them to the finals back-to-back years. So I really value that. I really value his peak, and I really value his two-way impact. Uh, I think Kidd's pretty underrated, and I'd take him over Thomas. I'd take him over Nash. I'd take him over Stockton. Wow. I was not expecting this. Jason Kidd is not on my true short list for the top 25. I would think off the top of my head, he's somewhere around 35, maybe even pushing 40 for me. And I love Jason Kidd, dude. He's a Bay Area legend, a Cal legend. I had a Jason Kidd shirt jersey that I think my dad had back in the 90s or something of him from Cal. And he's one of the most fun passers to watch ever because of the variety that he possesses. I think in terms of manipulating angles, manipulating the spin of the ball, just at his size, he was capable of so much a genius in transition but ultimately i mean it's not just that he was inefficient he's really limited as a scorer compared to i would say anybody that i considered for this list and it's because of his really erratic jump shooting until you get into the later stages of his career while also not being a great rim pressurer like he wasn't that sort of high-end athlete so throughout his career he's two and a half percent worse than league average true shooting and his team offenses were never good like when jason kidd was the offensive engine those nets teams are consistently hovering around 20th in the league and yes he improved them but the great players throughout offensive history are taking their offenses as a team product up to another level than what jason kidd did to me because of his limitations as a score and they were pretty glaring so I love his two-way impact, but there's only so much that a perimeter defender can do to improve a team defense, right? He may thrive in his role in a vacuum, but overwhelmingly, you're going to need to have great rim protection, or you're going to need to have a little bit of a bigger wing than Jay Kidd, who was big for a point guard, but not able to handle the sort of matchup variety that like a Kawhi Leonard or a Scottie Pippen or one of those guys could. So for those reasons... And I just think the two finals runs are pretty overrated. Like, yes, he did not have good supporting casts. He also didn't have to face a good team to get to the finals. Like, the best team that he beat in 02 was the 49-win Celtics, led out there by Antoine Walker and young Paul Pierce. And then he beats the 03 Pistons, who won 50 games, but that's before they have Sheed. Like, they are not the team that you think of of course that would ultimately go on to be so successful throughout the decade so the east just sucked man and i think the nets are a couple of the worst finalists ever so to me it's like you can't just look at finals in a vacuum championships are one thing because you beat everybody who the league had to throw at you but like there are so clearly suns teams from like 05 through 07 that were better and perform better in the playoffs than the 02 or 03 Nets, but they didn't make the finals because they had to go through who was inevitably going to be the champ, right? The Spurs, for example, versus the Antoine Walker-led Celtics. I love J-Kid. It's hard for me to see the path, but it's bold, so I like it. I mean, you make a good point. He only anchors one top-five offense throughout you know, his entire tenure in the NBA. Uh, let me ask you this, then. Like... Is James Harden, uh, uh, you know, a, a conversation for you between like him and Jay Kidd? Like, is that a because yeah. of how dominant he was as an offensive centerpiece? Would you consider having him higher? I think that they're in the same tier for me. Let me ask you something: Do you have Chris Paul okay. higher than Jason Kidd? No, I do not. 
Okay, that makes no sense to me, Logan. I mean, that is another elite point of attack defender. Like, yeah, Jay Kidd's bigger, so there's a little more versatility there. But then Chris Paul is just so much better churning out top five offenses, different level as a scorer. I would say maybe not as flashy of a passer, but has a better command of the game and is more efficient as a playmaker, too. He doesn't make mistakes. Led consistently better teams across different situations. Like, you can't just use the finals point there to me without looking at the context of CP having to go through a historically great West for over a decade versus J-Kid having to go through a historically weak East for a couple years. I don't know. I mean, those teams aren't very good. I get he's not going through the best competition out East. Nobody was good in the East. Nobody was good. (laughs) J-Kid's Nets were. They got to the finals twice. I don't know. I... I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. They did, bro. They did get ran through. I mean, even the series is Chris Paul. Is Chris Paul above? Is is Chris Paul above Isaiah Thomas and Stockton for you, bro? I'm not giving out any spoilers. I was just looking at a a better (laughs) version of a somewhat similar archetype. But I mean, I will say at least the Nets were more competitive in the 03 finals, but we've talked about the strength of that Spurs team around Tim Duncan. It was not very good. And the Nets were just bad offensively. What they put up like 82 points per game in that series or something. So J kid wasn't, they were great defensively though, man. And I don't want to underrate they were a... J kids impact. Like I get, yes, it's but a they team, were... it's team... Uh... defense is a team thing. It is a team thing, but there is one position that very clearly drives great defenses and it is centers. It is guys who can have an impact on the interior, taking away the rim. A great defensive point guard can only do so much for a team defense. But hey, man, I like the boldness. It's fun, all right? We got to have a a good disagreement there. It's not like our top 10 receivers where our biggest flip (laughs) is Lance Allworth and Julio Jones at 8 and 9. Okay, my number 24, I'm fascinated by where your list is headed, by the way, is Carl Malone. And I considered every way to leave Carl Malone off this list that I could have. And I still think I have. You just, you just could have done it. You just could have done it. (laughs) I could have, but not if I wanted to tell the most accurate version of basketball history and get this list absolutely right, which trust me, I have put every ounce of energy into doing the strengths of his case. He is top three all time in terms of consistency and longevity as a scorer. He averaged 20 points per game 17 times. He averaged 25 points per game 12 times. He was the best guy on 17 straight playoff teams, two finalists, five Western Conference finalists, just consistently a very, very high-level basketball player and one of the best scorers that we've ever seen. And his scoring skill set is very impressive. The production in a 19-year career, is 25 points per game on plus 4.6% true shooting versus league average. And a good chunk of that prime coming in the slowest and most brutal offensively era of basketball, that being the late 90s and the early 2000s. He really is an impressive scorer to watch. He's not the most exciting compared to some of these other guys, but such elite instincts as a roller and as a target around the rim, his ability to find open space, a very high IQ score in his ability to play within the flow and to complement a great point guard like John Stockton, but also in terms of getting buckets for himself, a very powerful athlete at 6'9", 250 with good body control, tough to stop with a head of steam. And I think underratedly, one of the best jump shooting bigs ever. He 
the years that we have record of 97 through 03 46% from the deeper mid-range area 16 feet to the three-point line and that was so valuable for pick and pop and just for spacing right you could throw to him in spot up situations getting himself buckets out of the post really really lethal there I also think defensively he's a bit underrated now Again, it's sort of like what we're talking about with Jason Kidd. He's a really good defender. He can't elevate a team defense because he's not filling that rim protection role. But very, very good hands and incredibly strong base and great use of leverage as a post defender. So he was really good there. And he was an elite defensive rebounder. So not a great defender in the scope of NBA history, but a very good one. Now, the weaknesses for Carl Malone are his playoff resume overall now he's still very productive as a scorer and he still makes some deep runs but his efficiency falls to 52.6 percent true shooting in the playoffs which is actually below league average whereas in the regular season he's almost five points better i also think his lack of being a real plus playmaker he was capable there but in a playoff mm -hmm. setting again it becomes all that much more important that you can dissect doubles what's maybe the most famous play of Carl Malone's career poetically he gets stripped because he doesn't see a double coming from MJ but he barely averaged more assists than turnovers in the playoffs throughout his Utah career so again not able to amplify teammates to the same extent that some of the other guys who are here could so that's basically why I don't have him higher. I think the playoff struggles, I don't think he had the sort of complete well-rounded skill set to singularly elevate teams to be great. Like, his scoring, I think, genuinely benefited so much from John Stockton being able to consistently hit him mm -hmm. in his spots. Like, a great point guard like that can do so much. And being a great play finisher is awesome it's super valuable there are more valuable things to me though like being a great playmaker who can also really get your own and then he's not an all-time two-way force so i compare him to some of the other power forwards on this list charles barkley to me a more efficient more versatile scorer who in the playoff stage for like if you look at each of their prime decades is producing at the same volume and a much better playmaker. To me, a guy who, within the scope of a team offense, actually amplified that unit a bit more. Whereas, again, Malone would feed, to some extent, off of what's created for him by Stockton. And compared to someone like Dirk, right? There's just a different level of versatility and efficiency and gravity there because, I mean, Malone was a really good jump shooter. Dirk, obviously, is in a different planet. But at the end of the day, man, I can be peak over longevity. I can value playmaking more than pure scoring. And I can value guys who singularly on either end of the ball are going to make me elite. If it's a David Robinson defensively, if it's a Steve Nash offensively, I don't know that Carl Malone singularly did that on either end of the ball, but he was such a good all-around basketball player. There's a reason he's 11-time first-team All-NBA, the number three scorer in the history of the game. And that sort of longevity, I mean, it's just Kareem and LeBron who you can put him in a tier with. So the totality of that... I couldn't keep out of my top 25. I do feel like I'm lower on him than the consensus. It'll be interesting to hear what you have to say, how you disagree. But I couldn't keep him off entirely, man. There's just too much quality basketball there. Incredible! It's incredible longevity. He's an incredible all-time scorer. Uh, Carl Malone's a schmuck, so I just like stamped my executive schmuck uh, stamp on him. Respect. And I said, He's not going to be on my list. Dude, you have no idea how badly I wanted to do that, Logan. I wanted so badly to just have a cop-out and carve out another spot on my list for somebody who 
I liked more or who even just purely as a basketball player, I view more favorably to versus the consensus. Cause I think I'm low on Malone, regardless of the fact that he's a bad guy, but I couldn't do it. I just, I'm not going to put any respect on his name and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. I mean, I think if you look at the totality of his resume, he's probably here, but I'm all right with leaving Carl off my list. I love it. I'm envious of you. <laughs> And uh, at 23, Carson, I have a guy who's very early on into his career, does not have the longevity at this point, and I'm going to be surprised to see if you have him on your list at all. Uh, I have Giannis Antetokounmpo, and Giannis is very early on uh, into his career, right? Um, but why is he above the other guys that uh, I already have on my list? Well, he's actually climbed the mountain already. He has done the hardest task in basketball. It is to be the best player on a championship team, and you know, one of the best defensive players in all of basketball. Carson, an absurd stat. I mean, you're just looking at interior forces throughout NBA history. I really do think Giannis is the most dominant force in the NBA since Shaq. Last season, shot 82% in the paint. On defense, he held people 17% below their average field goal um, percentage inside of six feet. He's one of the best defensive players we've ever seen. They put him in that rover role. He can play free safety. Great at jumping into passing lanes. Great as a help side rim protector. Great as a straight-up rim protector if the Bucks run him at the five. And he's just a bull in a china shop. And the big thing to me is, I mean, that physical set, how physical he is, how strong he is, how he can just body guys and get to the rack with ease. But over the past few seasons, we've really seen Giannis improve steadily year to year as a playmaker. Now, uh, the one aspect I don't like of Giannis's game is that the fact that he hasn't developed a reliable jump shot and the fact that he continues to shoot it. Uh, Giannis has routinely been one of the worst jump shooters in all of basketball. I mean, they just leave him, and he's like, well, I'll take it. Statistically, it is one of the worst shots in all of basketball. Like, if he's not going to actually get good of it, I'd rather just Giannis back a guy down and get inside the arc and collapse the defense a little bit. But he's one of the most dominant interior forces we've ever seen and in all of basketball today. He's already a Finals MVP already an NBA champion. He's a two-time league MVP, four times he's all-defense first team, and I think he can definitely get higher. Right now he's still in his playing career, but there's a lot of room to grow. I can 100% see Giannis being the best player on multiple more championship teams before the end of his career. There are limiting factors, right? Giannis is not a great all-around offensive force. He's really good at weaponizing his physicality and his brute force getting downhill I would like to see Giannis become more of a guy that you can go to in late-game situations. Luckily, he has the benefit, I hope, with this new system, with this new coach. They rely more on Chris Middleton in late-game situations, even though he's regressed a little bit. That's another limiting factor that, again, maybe could rear its ugly head in the playoffs, that he's not a guy who can initiate from the perimeter, and he's not a guy who, in late-game situations, can go get you a bucket. But I can overlook that with all of the other value that he gives me defensively, and is just, like I said, man, one of the most impactful and wrecking balls in all of basketball. He's very young. He's very early in his career. I think there's a lot more room for him to grow and go higher on this list. But for the time being, I have Giannis at 23. I won't do my full Giannis spiel now because, spoiler alert, he is not on this ooh, episode for me. I have ooh. him a few spots higher. I think that comes down to valuing peak for me. I just think that there's a couple of talents in the NBA today who are doing things that are so monumentally great that very few people have been capable of it throughout NBA history. And I just can't really look at myself and be like, if Giannis retired today, if this is where it ends, I couldn't have 
Carl Malone above him. I couldn't have Charles Barkley above him. I just think what he was capable of at his apex, what we've already seen, not even projecting anything forward because you can't do that in a list like this. How many guys ever have been able to be far and away the best defensive player on the floor in a final series and far and away the best offensive player on the floor in a final series? How many guys ever have just been automatic elite regular season success like Giannis has? They've won 73% of their games with him since 2019, the Bucks, who can be the foundation of top five offenses and top five defenses easily, who produces just in terms of him walking into 30, 12, and 6 efficiently while being one of the handful of best defensive players, so versatile, one of the greatest off-ball and help-side rim protectors we've ever seen. Man, it's like you said, he's climbed the mountain. I do have some issues with some of his weaknesses that have been exploited on the playoff stage, but I think he's capable of things that a lot of all-time great players could mm -hmm. only dream of, and he's already done it, so he is in my top 20 because of that. My number 23, though, is a guy who I've mentioned a couple times in comparison to a couple other great power forwards, Carl Malone and Giannis, and that is Charles Barkley, who I am super high on, man. And yes, I do like him more than Carl Malone because I think he's really a uniquely dominant offensive weapon. I just made a TikTok about him a couple weeks ago, sort of trying to encompass what made him so great. An incredibly historically efficient scorer and very versatile he led the league in true shooting percentage for four straight seasons which nobody has done since and he's doing that in a super high volume role his true shooting percentage of plus 7.7 versus league average is the best on this entire list it's better than steph magic kareem oscar jerry west all the other most efficient players in nba history with the exception of reggie miller who's not on my list chuck is number one he is arguably the most efficient superstar ever and it was just such a phenomenal skill set that he had, right? The blend of overwhelming strength with skilled ball handling, with impressive agility and body control. He was excellent as a grab-and-go threat in transition because of all of that. He was a great post-hub because of that physicality and balance and also the fact that he was a capable jump shooter. Again, that's an important counter to have to keep people honest. Help make him a legitimate off-ball player where he had good instincts as a cutter and you could find him in the dunker spot, but also he was a solid spot-up shooter. An elite foul drawer, which helped his efficiency because of that inherent physicality that he always played with. And his production in the playoffs is outstanding. All the way from 86 to 96. So just before the Houston years and once he is like a star in Philly, 26, 13 and a half and four and a half on plus 5.1% true shooting versus league average. That is sensational. It's clearly a superior level of playoff production to Carl Malone. And then you also have the fact that he is a really good playmaking forward, like very heads up in transition where he was so good skilled dissecting doubles out of the post. He's a top three inch for inch rebounder ever. 11.7 career rebounds per game at 6.5 also helped his offensive efficiency in a way that we can't account for because of true shooting percentage, right? If he misses a shot, gets a rebound off his own miss, puts it back up, he still shot 50% there. But in terms of that possession, he got two points. He might as well have shot 100%. So some of the great offensive rebounders are even sold a little bit short. And Chuck is already the most efficient superstar ever. So the result is just that he was a great offensive engine. 1989, 1990, led back-to-back -to -back top three offenses in Philly with Hersey Hawkins. Shout out, good player, but as his number two, 
really impressive. Got to Phoenix, had a much better infrastructure there with KJ and good supporting pieces, immediately leads two number one offenses. And then even when he goes to Houston and he's nowhere near his prime, helped lead them to three of the top five offenses that Akeem ever had. And Akeem was never that sort of like singularly lead you to be very good offensively sort of hub. So massive offensive impact. A very high peak, of course, 1993 MVP, the finals appearance there, but also the consistency, the longevity, 11 times All-NBA, five-time first team, monumentally great offensive player. The weaknesses for him, not a high-impact defender, and he couldn't singularly carry weak supporting casts to contention, right? He wasn't a Oscar Robertson level of, I'm not just going to dominate as a scorer, I'm going to get everybody else much higher quality shots offensively. So we're going to be a top offense in the league no matter what. And he wasn't going to dominate the game defensively. So if you look at 87 and 92, he won just 54% of his games with the Sixers. But as with a lot of weak team defenses that aren't his fault, and his best teammate was either 30 plus year old Mo Cheeks or Hersey Hawkins. So bottom line, I think an all-time great offensively in terms of versatility, efficiency, scoring, and playmaking combination for a forward whose team success just would have been greater if he had more respectable supporting casts, but who also was not in that all-time pantheon of singularly making you a contender no matter what. But I think that there's a clearer path to him being my number one on a championship team than there is for like a David Robinson who I mentioned because of how dominant he was offensively in that playoff setting. And I think even more than Carl Malone, he created more of his offense more efficiently and his game scaled better. So although he doesn't have Carl Malone level longevity, it's still really good. And I prefer the peak. So if I'm talking about give me championship value, give me who was better at their best. And I think that that's Chuck. You make a really good case here, Carson. I'm not going to lie. I, I, uh, it sucks. I left the Chuckster off just because of, of two-way value. Um, mm. Not not an elite defender, but he really is one of the best scorers of all time. I mean, if you go and look at some of the, again, the most efficient 25-point-per-game seasons of all time, you'll have, you know, the Kevin Durant's of the world. You'll have the Alex Englishes of the world, but you'll also have Chuck with multiple seasons in the top 10. He is one of the most efficient buckets ever. Damn, man. I, you make a really compelling case for Chuck, dude. I I feel bad leaving him off my list. Like, if I am thinking about number one as a number one option, I'm second-guessing my Hondo selection at this point just because I, I do think Chuck's offensive peak kind of outweighs his two-way value. I'm going to stick with it, but that's a really good case, man. I think I just held the fact that Chuck didn't get a ring uh, against him a little too harshly, you know? Yeah, and... I can't see it for Jason Kidd over Chuck. There's just no way. Like, one dude was just a better number one who led better teams and was more clearly directly responsible for that. You got to have Chuck over Jay Kidd. Chuck's a, Chuck's a tough cut. I, I feel I feel bad for that one. I At number 22, you mentioned, we, we talked about this guy earlier, Carson. You mentioned that you don't have him here on your list. I do, and that's Kawhi Leonard. Um Kawhi's one of the greatest wing defenders of all time. I think second to maybe only Scottie Pippen, and I think you can make a legit argument that Kawhi Leonard is number one. He's a two-time defensive player of the year from the wing. Very hard to do. 
three times All-NBA first team, uh, two times All-NBA second team, seven-time All-Defense selection, three of those on the first team. He's a two-time Finals MBT, uh, uh, MVP and a two-time NBA champion. Uh, it's all about the longevity and the availability that I mentioned with Kawhi Leonard because he has reached such, such a high peak when he has been on the floor. When Kawhi Leonard plays, he looks truly unstoppable. He is a terminator. If he wants to get to a spot, he's going to get to a spot. If he wants to go get a bucket, he is going to serve you a bucket. Kawhi truly looks unstoppable. He's improved as a playmaker over the past couple of years. I'll read you at some of these numbers. Just last season, 53% on pull-ups, 49% on fadeaways, 44% on stepbacks. It is disgusting how easily he is making these tough shots. I mean, in the playoffs, we only see him for a couple of games. He's at 36-6. and six. You know what I mean? Kawhi is automatic when he is on the floor, and at his peak, I mean, Kawhi, to me, Carson, was the toughest player to rank in my top 25 because I mm -hmm. think his peak, we did a show a long time ago with friend of the show, Gabe Swartz. We drafted our all-time NBA teams. My first two selections were Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Kevin Durant. My third pick was Kawhi Leonard. I mean, when you were looking at absolute peak and well all-around value at their best, I think Kawhi's top 15, and I think you can make a legit argument that he's top 10. I mean, you just rarely get this combination of all-time wing defense, with all-time tough shot making, with good playmaking, with great finishing, and just complete control of the game. But again, when you look at availability, that's a big knock on Kawhi, and I can't fault you for not having him here. Since over the past five seasons, he's missed 178 games. That's 36 games a year, man. I, it's tough because he's been at his best over these past five seasons, but he just hasn't been available. So I understand why you don't have him on his list, but... Kawhi's peak is so high to me that I just have to have him here. And again, if we were just ranking pure peak, I think Kawhi's top 15 all time, man. No debate. He is a special, special talent. I just wish we could see him on the floor more. I respect it. And I mean, I was just giving my spiel on why I thought that Kawhi was underrated last week. There is not a player who I have named so far, Chuck, Carl Malone, D. Wade, whose peak I would take over Kawhi. But in terms of longevity, his resume is a lot closer to Bill Walton than it is to other guys. And, of course, it's not that extent. Bill Walton had three healthy seasons. But the second ring for both of them where they're not the guy is something that like I value a little bit because both of them filled a specific role at a very high level. But very clearly, they're not the driving factor there. Even though Kawhi's finals MVP, I mean, that was such an ultimate team Tony Parker was the best offensive player. I think Timmy was overall a better player than Kawhi. Kawhi really did shine in that matchup and in that series, but it is about his peak since 2016, 2017 to me when he's been the guy. And I understand it, dude. He's led dominant regular season teams. He has been insanely good in the playoffs, but it's the availability and it's the fact that he's been so spectacular, but it hasn't led to the sort of consistent results that it ideally would just because he, he can't stay out there consistently enough. And of course his regular season accolades also because of availability don't compare, which mm -hmm. are the most important thing to me, but right. Five time all-star would be a real rarity on this list. Even Giannis is a seven time all-star already. Giannis came into the mm -hmm. league two years later than Kawhi. Okay. My number 22 is another active player who you do not have on your list. And maybe this is my spiciest take here. I don't know. I have Chris Paul. I think he is the most complete point guard ever. 
I think that starts with him being so brilliant offensively and maybe the purest pick and roll talent that there has ever been. His ability to constantly compromise the defense as one of the greatest mid-range shooters ever, 49% from 10 to 16 feet in his career, 47% from 16 feet to the three-point line, just unconsciously efficient there. And of course, has an all-time great floater. So he can get those shots pretty much at will. And when he gets them, they are as easy for him as anybody in NBA history. And of course, New Orleans' Chris Paul is one of the quickest players that we've ever seen. So there was another level as a score that he could reach at that point. But once he gets into the teeth of the defense, he can make every kick to a shooter. He can make every lob. He's just such a superb passer, even though he doesn't have some of the angles that the 6'6 to 6'8 guys do. His precision, if it's entry passes, if it's finding a cutter in traffic, their perfection. He doesn't make mistakes. 9.5 assists per game to 2.4 turnovers in his career is unfathomable control of the game. And I don't think anybody has ever strangled the pace, just completely seized control of a basketball game, surgically getting whatever they want every possession in our lifetime, like Chris Paul. Like, maybe LeBron is in that same tier. Of course, mm-hmm. he has a different level of overall impact because of his athletic advantages. But the dude is just a maestro. And I understand that he doesn't have a finals appearance as the best guy, although he was massively important to that Phoenix team. And he has this reputation as being a playoff underperformer because of that. But he ups his scoring volume and efficiency in the playoffs. He's a career 20-point-per-game scorer there on plus 3.5% true shooting versus league average. That's over 15 seasons. The only players who are not like really young guys where the numbers don't really matter all that much right now to average 20 points and eight assists per game in the playoffs are Oscar, Chris Paul, and Isaiah. And Chris Paul is doing so much more efficiently than Isaiah. Then you have the fact that he is an elite defender. Again, there's only so much that a point guard can do to impact team defense, but CP3 is one of the best positional defenders, especially as a small guard that we have ever seen at his best was just an absolutely monstrous point-of-attack defender with elite quickness, some of the best hands, some of the highest IQ, and just highly disruptive tendencies that we've ever seen. So the all-around result of that, this like nearly perfect point guard, exceptionally complete, is a huge winning impact. His teams have improved by 9.6 points per 100 possessions in his career. That is better than Dirk. That is better than Tim Duncan. That is better than Kevin Durant. Out of all the greats this century, that only trails KG, Steph, Jokic, and LeBron, all of whom I have above Chris Paul on this list. He's won 65% of his career games. That is the equivalent of averaging a 53-win pace for 18 years in all these different situations. He led six top five offenses throughout the New Orleans and the Clippers years, including two number one offenses, and then contributed significantly as a top two guy to four more top five offenses in Houston and Phoenix and consistently upped his level in the playoffs in those situations. So I just think that all around value, if you're comparing him to some of the other great point guards who you would consider for this list, he has a takeover scoring edge over Stockton, able to reach a different gear there than Lil John John could. He's got a massive defensive edge over Steve Nash in a longer peak, even though I think Nash is the better pure offensive engine. He's got the efficiency and the 
just overall impact as an offensive engine edge over Isaiah. Same goes for Jason Kidd. He's in a total other tier there. So I think Chris Paul is, in terms of not having a ring, one of the most unfortunate players ever. I think it's a product of, sure, some of it being his health, some of it being his teammates' health, some of it being going up against great, great teams in the West that were more talented, some of it being his teammates letting him down. I just think very rarely has it been a product of Chris Paul not playing great basketball. He is as consistently great a point guard as we have seen in this league, doing it on both ends of the floor, scoring and playmaking, regular season and playoffs. I think he's the man. I think he's underrated, and I have him at 22. I think this is a really good take. Uh, I distinctly remember, too, David West telling a story about Chris Paul uh, in 2008 when they lost in seven to the Spurs uh, in Chris made a comment uh, talking about how, oh, we're going to be here every year, year in, year out. And uh, David explained to him, it's tough. It's really hard, you know, just making the playoffs, being in these opportunities to go out and win games. And it is one of the most unfortunate uh, if Chris Paul does not get a ring, you know, if the Warriors don't win it all this year or something, and Chris Paul retires without one, it's not going to change the scope, but it's like, it would be really nice. And it's unfortunate, man. The injury that he suffered uh, against the Rockets, the Clippers shortcomings although he does have a classic playoff moment too man I know you remember it uh, against the Spurs that uh mid-range bank shot that he hit uh I, I distinctly remember that that was the night of the Mayweather Pacquiao fight uh, it was right before and he banged it and broke my heart because I love those Spurs teams Chris Paul is really unfortunate that he doesn't have a ring and he has performed well this is this is a good take Carson I think I may have unfairly uh held the fact that he doesn't have a finals appearance against him too but uh, it's tough, man. Let me ask you this about Chris Paul. Do you think he had more defensive impact than Jason Kidd, too? Do you think like he's a top three defensive point guard ever? I think they're in the same tier, firmly. And I think he's a way better offensive player than Kidd. I think that's fair. I think that's very fair. Um, man. Never got to a... He's consistently great. This is a good take, dude. I'm not going to lie. This is this is a really good one. I, I wonder if I underrated Chris Paul, too, because I think there is a different scoring edge than a guy like Jason Kidd, because Kidd could not... Sh he's ace and kid, man. He couldn't shoot the rock till he got old in his career. Had a decent midi, but... it's a This is a solid take. I think I may have slept on Chris Paul a little too heavy. It happens, man. And again, there's an insane amount of good candidates here. So... Last one that we're going to touch on today. Who do you have at 21, Logan? 20, 21 is a guy that I said was one of my most underrated players in sports history, and that is a gentleman that uh, <laughs> is very close to my hometown. That's Moses Malone. Um, one-time NBA champion, a one-time finals MVP, and a three-time MVP. I seriously do not think people talk about Moses Malone enough uh, in the scope of NBA history. Four-time All-NBA first team, four-time All-NBA second team, 13-time All-Star, not only won the ring with the 1983 Sixers, a loaded squad, Mo Cheeks, Julius Irving, Andrew Toney, uh, Bobby Jones, the boys going to work, uh, one of Moses' favorite quotes, <laughs> we're going to work, and he took the 40-win 1981 Rockets to the finals, they end up losing in six to the Boston, but that's a decent path too, they upset Magic and Kareem, uh, that Lakers team in the first round. He's at his peak. He's 24 and 14. He's got great longevity, too. Moses played forever. I think he's the greatest rebounder, arguably, ever. He's an underrated passer on, like, full-court plays, on outlet passes. Got pretty good footwork. He's a good shot blocker. Not a great uh, deterrent inside. But 
I think I put him over Kawhi and all the other guys because of the longevity, but I think the really limiting thing with Moses is he's got a pretty limited skill set and archetype in comparison to the guys that are higher. Like, um, I have other guys who are just more offensively inclined to leading great offenses, right? I think Moses could dominate his matchups, and I think he could dominate the interior ways other guys can't because he is such a great rebounder and so great at uh, getting extra opportunities for his teammates and so great on the interior. But you have to think, too, he had a great team surrounding him when he wins the title. Yes, he gets finals MVP. That's a great all-time team. I just think when you're looking at other guys, say a Nikola Jokic, when you're looking at a Dirk Nowitzki, there's just a different offensive you know, high that those teams can reach that Moses couldn't. Moses is super effective, super impactful, but to me, not a great all-time defender and not a guy who's going to lead you to being a super dominant offense either. So those are the limiting factors for me, but I think you got to put respect on him. The man won three straight, he won three MVPs, man. Uh, and, and he led one of the greatest teams of all time. But the skill set is ultimately what limits Moses, despite having all the accolades, despite having a great peak, despite having the longevity from climbing higher onto my list. So Moses comes in at 21 for me. For all the disagreement that we've had today, Logan, I thought this was actually going to be a major point of disagreement because of what you said about Moses being like the most underrated player ever. I have him at number 21 as well. And I think the whole most underrated thing really starts from two things. Three-time MVP, people don't really talk about Moses very much. But I also think there's important context around the three MVPs argument. One of them being... The 1979, somebody other than Kareem was just going to get that award, right? There was too much voter fatigue, and the Lakers weren't a great team. So even though Kareem was still clearly the best player on the planet, somebody else had to do it. Next year, Moses has a nearly identical season, very similar production. Rockets are just a little bit worse, and he finished ninth in MVP voting. So this is why, again, accolades we can't just blindly follow. There's too many factors at play that aren't just objectively telling the story. And then... I do think he's probably the best player in the world from 81 to 83, but I think he's mm -hmm. one of the less convincing best players in the world that we've ever seen. And I think he capitalizes on a bit of a down era there where Kareem's not quite at his apex anymore. Magic and Bird haven't quite risen to their apex. So he does hold that title, but it's one of the easier eras in modern NBA history to hold that title. And it is relatively brief in the scope of these guys who we're talking about. You laid it out. I mean, he was a dominant scorer, right? A lot of that just being a big, strong post target who had some solid touch there and could finish around the rim. And he had a little bit of skill there with some turnarounds and whatnot, but not one of the all-time skilled post scorers. And just monstrous offensive rebounding production. You say he might be the best rebounder ever. I think he is the greatest offensive rebounder ever. 5.1 offensive boards per game in his career. Great strength, positioning, timing on his jumps. And like I talked about with Chuck, that almost certainly, I don't know why I even said almost, improves his efficiency as a scorer based on the metrics that we have because he is the all-time greatest of grabbing his own miss and then scoring. So I do think he's a great offensive player. He's the best player on four top five offenses in his career. But I also think it's worth noting that both Philly and Houston had top five offenses the year before adding him. Houston actually had the number one offense in the league with Rudy T and Calvin Murphy. They were uh, really excelling on that end, although they were not a good defensive team at that point. And then Philly had just been to the finals, right? They had so many of the pieces uh, in place who would contribute to that title team, Dr. J, Tony, Mo Cheeks, et cetera. 
So I agree with you in that he's not singularly propelling teams to be great there, even if he may be the best player on some really good offenses. And then you have the fact that he did carry some really miserable teams to being respectable. You mentioned the 81 finals. Super impressive because that's one of the worst cores to ever make it that far. But again, context matters. We talk about the Jason Kidd finals. The East sucked. The West sucked. They beat the Lakers. Crazy impressive, but it's in a best of three series. That's year two Magic, who had been hurt for a lot of the season. So it's a relatively lucky upset. Then they beat a very meh Spurs team led by Gervin, and then they beat the 40-win Kings. So it's just the reality of the 80s. Like, outside of the Lakers, the entire Western Conference pretty much sucked. Then 82, he makes them a 46-win team. He wins MVP. They go into 83 with a somewhat similar roster. They lose Robert Reed, who was probably the second-best player, and then they win 14 games. So, like, those Rockets teams were bad, and Moses made them respectable. But also that finals run is through such a weak West. I think that is worth noting for context. Some of the weaknesses of his case, I think the length of his peak, he is eight-time All-NBA. He's four-time first team. Once we're getting into the top 20 range, that doesn't stand out so much. And his only window of real impact, like top of the league, is 1979 to 1986. His longevity in terms of being a productive player is all-time great. The dude played 20 years. But I just don't care that much about his like pretty meaningless 20-point-per-game seasons in Washington and Atlanta where he's a fringe all-star kind of guy. It's sort of like some of those D-Wade years in 2015, 2016. I don't really care that much. You mentioned his passing. I do not think he's underrated there. I think he's a uniquely limited playmaker. The outlet passing is one very specific thing, but out of the post, he was a real black hole in his entire career. Averaged 1.3 assists per game. And you mentioned not a foundational defensive big a solid rim protector, a very good defensive rebounder, but not even historically great there. He was so much better on the offensive mm -hmm. class. And in his entire career, only anchored two top five defenses, those being the loaded Philly ones with Mo Cheeks and Bobby Jones, like great defensive players. The Houston teams were never above 16th out of the 22 to 23 teams in the league when he was there. So overall, I agree with you on the shortcomings. He's not a complete all-time great. Playmaking limitations, lack of super versatile scoring. I mean, he's not a great offensive engine. He's not a dominant two-way player. And I actually think the MVPs, the 1983 title, and the longevity scoring numbers make him overrated a bit when we're talking about all-time lists. Not how often does he come up, but I think people will be surprised. They'll say, why isn't Moses in the top 15? That 83 team was great. Man, those MVPs need more context for a down era and for some of the voting dynamics that we've talked about. Like, if I'm comparing him to Dirk, Dirk is a much better scorer and all-around offensive player who did it for longer at that level, who was a more proven floor raiser, consistently propelling teams to high levels. So I think that Moses, ultimately 21, is appropriate for him. Yeah, I think so too, and... Uh... He's got decent footwork down there on the low block too, but it's not like he's shaking guys. It's it's kind of brute force. I think this is a good ranking for him. And that's what I'm saying is if he was more impactful, if he was more versatile offensively, or if he was a genuine defensive anchor, I think Moses could be higher. But considering how many, I mean, I'm looking at, at my top 20. I mean, everybody else is just so much more offensively inclined and could drive winning as your lead guy. And Moses never really was that on, on either side of the ball, but he was great at what he did well and 
uh, part of a great collective. They ended up getting the championship. I do think Moses has to be in the top 25, but I think mm-hmm. I think this is right for him, man. He does have to be in the top 25. I mean, he accomplished some of those benchmarks, right? He got over the hump as the guy. He was the best player in the world for a time. You don't fluke into three MVPs. But I also think that some of those, like, just bottom line things that get pulled out of his resume don't tell the full story of his career and his basketball skill set compared to other all-time great players of course Mm -hmm. Moses was great everybody who we've mentioned even in passing here today is so that's going to do it for part one we'll be back very soon with part two looking at 20 through 16 which should be a whole lot of fun so hope you guys continue to stick out this series with us i thought that this was a really fun discussion and there's just so much to say about all these guys man this is like the zenith of my life doing this top 25 (laughs) players ever as much as i love basketball history and as much as i've thought about a lot of this stuff i've never forced myself to put together a concrete list like this and i feel good about my 25 through 21 although it was very tough to come up with so Stay tuned on the Volume YouTube page. We'll continue to drop full video there. Subscribe if you enjoyed. Check out our podcast, just audio, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content there. Follow us across social media, Instagram and TikTok at NerdSesh, Twitter at Nerd underscore Sesh. You can join our Discord. That is at the link tree across our social media bios. You can also buy our merch. We got the flags behind us. I'm wearing the hat. That is all at thevolume.com. We've got shirts and hoodies as well. And you can find that through our link tree too. So with that, as always, appreciate you guys. Hope to see you for part two. I've been Carson Brever. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sash. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. Give your glucose alerts and readings from the G7. Do not match symptoms or expectations. Use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility.